The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. Lord Jesus, we come to meet with you today. We come to be in your presence. We come to sit and to, to hear from the one who is wonderful and beautiful and matchless. Jesus, we come here today not simply to talk about you or to talk about the things of you, but God, to meet with you, to experience you. So Jesus, I thank you for that opportunity. I thank you for letting us be here today. Holy Spirit, I ask that you come and move in power today. I come, I ask that you come and you give us understanding in your word. And, and God, you bring comfort to those who are broken. And God, that you bring brokenness to the prideful, God. I, I pray that you bring us to see you more clearly. So God, meet us where we are. For your glory, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, it is a privilege to be back with you again another week. Um, we, uh, we spent this last week, or I spent this last week, uh, at kids' camp with a bunch of elementary school kids. And um, until my kids are that age, um, I, don't, I don't know if I have too many kind things to say. Uh, so anyway, uh, but, but I made it. And, uh, and no, we, we really did have a good time. Um, and uh, and, and it, the, the people on the trip were wonderful. Uh, there was a lady on the trip, Angie Kammerzink. Uh, she made a beautiful cake. My birthday was this past Wednesday, and she made a beautiful cake for me, so I've got to repay the favor. I've got to give her a shout-out. Today is her birthday. I turned 28. She turned 28 plus a little, a few years. Uh, and so anyway, so Angie Kammerzink, happy birthday wherever you are. And uh, I didn't bake you a cake, and that's my gift to you, all right, uh, because you don't want that. Um, so uh, let, me, uh, let me explain where we've been and where we're going, all right? Last week we started a new series. Uh, it's, called, uh, it's called Faith, Love, and Hope, and, and we're walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians, all right? This is Paul's first letter. Uh, this is one of the first churches that he visits, and, and maybe he even had a huge hand uh, in establishing. And so uh, he writes this letter uh, uh, to the Thessalonians to encourage them, but also to answer some questions they have. Paul was removed way too soon uh, from them because of some Jewish people who had stirred up uh, the city against him. Uh, and so he was quickly removed from the city. And so he sent Timothy back to encourage them and continue to instruct them. And so Timothy comes back and he brings this report. And so this first part of this report, he's praising them for their faithfulness and the, and the work of the gospel in their lives. And then he's also giving them instructions for holy living. And then, of course, he is giving them teaching on the, the, the resurrection of the dead and the return of our Lord Jesus and talking about the hope of that return. And so that's where we are. We're going to be walking through that. Uh, this past week, uh, we took a big bite out of First Thessalonians. We got through a whole four verses. Uh, and so uh, one of the things we talked about uh, is the, in, in the, the, the title of the message last week was Evidence of Election. And we looked at verse four that said, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. And so we were looking at what is the evidence that we are chosen of God? What is the evidence that we are children of God? And we saw that uh, through 1 Thessalonians verses 1 through 4, we saw the, the, the evidence as he starts to lay it out in verse 3 was the linchpin of, our, of the argument here. And, and it says this, remembering before our God and our Father, 
your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. And remember, if you were with us last week, we, we gave you two columns, right? We gave you a left column, all right, uh, that had the work of God, right? The cause, that's the work of God, and the effect, what that does in our lives. So we see that faith, true faith, as it's gifted to us from God, it results in an effect of work, right? We work out of faith. And so anytime that you choose righteousness, you choose good, you do a work of what? Faith. It's a response to the faith God has given you. We labor out of love. So God loves us. He's given us that love. And because he loved us, we what? We can love. And so now all of our decisions, all of the things that we do should be marked and driven by love for God and love for others. All right. The last thing in that left column, the thing that God has given us is hope. The hope of the resurrection. The hope of standing before God clean and forgiven and new and so because of that hope and we know that in the end that that he has always won he's winning now and he will always win when we know that hope that the one we follow is a winner the one we follow is the king of kings there's nothing better bigger braver more uh, stronger more beautiful there's nothing nothing that that can compare to him when we have that hope we can endure we can be steadfast in all things all right so that's what we learned last week that a evidence of God working in your life, the evidence that the Lord Jesus is your Lord, the evidence that you are a child of God, chosen of God, elect of God, is that he has given you faith, love, and hope, and it has resulted in work, labor, and steadfastness. Now we're going to continue with that, um, and this week is evidence selection part two. Now listen, I told you last week that I really hope to finish this chapter this week, but that's not exactly what's going to happen. Uh, we're going to look at one verse this week. And, and, I, and I hope upon hope that we will finish the chapter next week. But we're going to look at one verse, and it still hinges on verse 3. It still hinges on faith, uh, uh, faith, love, and hope, right? And everything in the rest of this will do that. And last week I asked you, as 1 Corinthians 13 says to do, I asked you to examine yourselves and see if you were in the faith, right? Examine yourselves and see, are these things happening in my life? Have I been affected in this way? Has it, has it brought about work and love and steadfastness? Have those things been evident in my life. And, and my prayer is that that continues as we go through First Thessalonians. My prayer is that continues every single time we get together. My prayer is that the, the Word of God will speak for itself and will continue to work in, in you and confirm in you and challenge you and work in you. And so, so I do hope that that's still my aim, of course, this week as well. However, this week an examination of this next verse really challenged me a lot uh, on the example of the, of the, uh, the church at Thessalonica. Uh, he was praising them uh, for their, uh, uh, for their, their steadfastness fastness for their labor of love for their work of faith but but then I was really challenged by verse 5 here and and really found it a, a, a humbling humbling verse and so we're going to be looking at that today but before we do uh, before we look at first Thessalonians 1 4 through 5 let me uh, let me pray for us Lord Jesus um, this passage is far um, above me as as all of scripture I suppose is um, this, is a, uh, this is a beautiful uh, message you've brought to us uh, from your scriptures. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask for your understanding. Holy Spirit, we ask for your guidance. We ask for you to speak. 
God, I, I ask that if there's anything that I would say that would not be of you, but would be of me, that, that you would block it from anyone's mind, block it from anyone's memory or recollection, and that, God, uh, you would completely have your way this morning. So, Holy Spirit, speak to us um, through your word, and may it um, cut deep um, straight to uh, our hearts this morning. So do your work. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under your chairs. You can get the little white Bibles, follow along. That's the translation I use. And if you don't have a Bible, take that with you. That is ours. We did not lowjack them. We won't come looking for you, all right? So take it with you. Um, verse 4, which you covered last week. We'll start there. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, here's what we're going to look at today. Verse 5. Because of our gospel, and that is the good news of Jesus, all right? That's not some gospel that they invented. It is simply, they're just simply saying because of the gospel that we presented to you, the truth of who Jesus is. And, and again, if you're not sure of the truth of who Jesus is, we are separated from God by our sin. We were not perfect. God requires perfection, right? And so his wrath, his punishment need to be poured out on us, on our sin. And if that, that punishment for our sin is what? It's death. It's death here and it's separation from God forever. But God, through his infinite love, sent his son. He, sat, he, he was uh, nailed to the cross and then God poured out his wrath for our sin, the punishment for our sin, the death for, of our sin onto his his son and bore our penalty. He died. He was in the ground for three days. He was resurrected by the power of God. And now he has victory over death so that we who would believe in him can go to him. And it's his righteousness, his perfection that, that pays our price. When God looks at me, he no longer sees Grant, the mess up, the screw up. He no longer sees Grant, the unrighteous. Instead, he sees his son perfect, right? My defense when I stand before God or anyone for that matter in my defense is the cross of Jesus Christ why should I let you into my kingdom because of your son because of the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ that's the good news so he says because our gospel the good news of Jesus came to you not only in word but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction let's look at that first verse that first part verse 5 because our gospel came to you not only in word Let's play a little game of fill in the blank, shall we? All right, I've been with kids all week. Here we go. So fill in the blank. Not, not yet. I'll tell you when. All right. So blank has a world of its own. Some would argue it, that world is too separate and that those in this world don't ever have to enter the real world. People gather and talk about and study blank. There are conferences all over the world that people travel considerable distances to attend about blank. There is a genre of music devoted to blank. Blank is frequently a political issue. There are publications, websites, blogs, online communities, retail stores, manufacturers devoted to blank. People give countless hours and money to blank. Now fill in the blank. Who can fill in the blank? This sounds like something that's changing the world. This sounds like something that's very, very serious. But let me fill in that blank for you. Are you ready? Video games. 
Video games. Video games has a world of its own. Some would argue too separate and, and that the people in this world don't ever enter the real world. People gather and talk about and study video games. There are conferences all over the world that people travel considerable t- uh, distances to attend about video games. There's a genre of music devoted to video games. Video games are frequently a political issue. There are publications, websites, blogs, online communities, retail stores, manufacturers devoted to video games. People give countless hours and dollars to video games. In the end, this is all talk. It's just all talk, right? Conferences, uh, the magazines, the money, the websites, all of it, it's fun. It's just fun and games. You know, people say, uh, uh, you know, it's all fun and games. No, it is. It really is, all right? It's just video games. That's all it is. Now, it seems like they take it very seriously, but in the end, it's just games. It's just talk, right? I enjoy video games. I, I have an Xbox at home, and, and so I'm, I'm very, very thankful uh, for, for blinds and shades uh, because I have something called the Kinect. You don't need a controller anymore, and, and so when I play Tiger Woods and I get up there, I, I have to look at my shot, and you have to do this and move the green, and then I really have to take a swing, and, and it's bad. It's really bad, and so I'm, I'm very, very thankful, and I don't even want to talk about the dance game because you wouldn't let me come up here anymore, and so anyway... Um, but it's all talk. It's all fun and games. I, I go to those retail stores. I, I've read the magazines. I've looked online and read things about video games. But in the end, it's all fun and games. It doesn't affect my life. It's, it's, not, it's not something serious in, in that sense. But uh, does this sound familiar? Does this sound awfully familiar? The blank has a world of its own. That, that there are conferences that people attend about blank. Maybe it sounds familiar because Christianity has a world of its own. Some would argue too separate and that those in this world don't have to enter the real world. People gather and talk about and study Christianity. There are conferences all over the world that people travel considerable distances to attend. There's a genre of music devoted to Christianity. Christianity is frequently a political issue. There are publications, websites, blogs, online communities, retail stores, manufacturers devoted to Christianity. People give countless hours and dollars to Christianity. Now, at this is the depth of the gospel for you. If it's conferences, if it's books, if it's gathering together and talking and studying, if that's the depth of this gospel to you, then it's the same as these video games. It's all talk. It's what this verse says. It says it, our gospel didn't come in just words. That's what it is to you. If that's where it ends, then it's all talk. It's, it's useless. It's all fun and games. It's just a game. It's just a game. And we reduce the gospel to that all the time. It's just a game. It's something that, that gives us something to gather around for. Do you know what I can get friends together to do? We can get together easily and we get an excuse to do it because it's football season. So we get together and watch football. Or you know what? There's a new, uh, yeah, Tiger Woods 13 just came out for the Xbox. Why don't you come over and we'll play that for a while, right? And so it gives us an excuse, something to get together. We use the gospel the same way. It's just words. I'll go to conferences about it. I'll wear its words on my t-shirts, right? I'll get together on Wednesday night and talk about the Bible, right? I was talking about this with my students earlier. Don't let the gospel be just words, right? Don't let it be just words. Don't let it be just a game. Don't let it be just a hobby, right? There was a, uh, a businessman who, uh, who was known for being a, a cruel man and ruthless. And he once said to Mark Twain, before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I'll climb Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments aloud at the top. I have a better idea, replied Twain. You could stay in Boston and keep them. And so to this man, it was just a game. 
And so many times it's the same for us. But you say, how do we know if, if the gospel is truly at work in me and it's not just talk? How do I know if, if, it's, if it's really, really working in me? It's something I've experienced and others are experiencing through me and it's not just talk. It's marked by something. Look back at verse 5. It didn't come just in words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel through the Holy Spirit brings power and assurance. It brings power and assurance. First, power. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, uh, Paul says this about um, the demonstration of power through the gospel. He says, in my speech, in my message, were not in plausible words of wisdom. Uh, in other words, I, I wasn't relying. My message was not completely reliant upon my ability to speak it. However, it was in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The gospel isn't an empty word game or ideology that you can take it or leave it. It's truth, and truth is powerful. Truth isn't always easy, but it's powerful, isn't it? It's always powerful. Uh, I think about, uh, sometimes it's really hard to hear. I, I just got home from kids camp, and so the first thing I wanted to do was sit down on the couch and turn on the television and watch the Olympics and watch uh, things I've never heard of, like handball. That sounds like, hey, we need another game. What can we do? I don't know. Let's throw this ball around. We can use our feet? Nope. Let's call it handball, right? Like, I didn't even know that existed, but I watched a game of it yesterday, all right? And so I came home, and I sat down, and, and I was just kind of sitting there and, and, and watching the Olympics and flipping through the channels, and, and Angela said, what's on the TV? And, and I said, dust. And so, like, sometimes... Sometimes truth isn't, isn't easy to handle, but it's always powerful, right? And so the gospel is true, and because it's true, it's powerful. And it displays its power through many different ways. Let me give you some examples. Number one, uh, one way it displays its power is through transformed lives. Through transformed lives, something the gospel can do, right? 1 Timothy 1, 15-17, Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What he's saying is I am the, the chiefest of sinners. I am the worst of the worst. However, the gospel came to save those. The gospel came to change those. The true gospel changes lives. It transforms Lives And Paul goes on to say in verse 16, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst of the worst, right? Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul is saying is that God displayed his patience in me so that if you're out there and you think I am the worst of the worst, I could never be forgiven, God could never be patient with me, God could never show his mercy to me, Paul says I am a living example of it. I'm a living example that absolutely he can and he will, right? Paul went out and persecuted the church of Christ. Paul went out and rounded up men, women, children to be brought to trial, to be brought to prison, even to be tortured and executed, right? Paul did the worst of the worst, right? But he's saying, I, am, I have been redeemed, I have been saved, so that you can see that God will show you mercy. You can see that Jesus is bigger than your sin. Jesus is bigger than yesterday, right? Jesus 
is bigger than whatever it was that was holding you down. Whatever it is that puts that guilt and that shame on your shoulders, Jesus is bigger. His patience is greater. His mercy is deeper. His grace is better than anything. And so Paul is saying, that the gospel is in our transformed lives, and he is an example of it. So if you're in this room, and you don't believe that Jesus can change you, you don't believe that his mercy can cover you and his grace can, can cover what you've done, then you don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. Transformed lives. The second way that the gospel displays its power. Change of focus. And what I mean by that is people stop looking at themselves and look to God. Our world teaches us, our culture teaches us that to find true meaning, to find true joy, to find true understanding, look within yourself. It's there somewhere, right? Dig down deep, right? Maybe, uh, maybe your life is plagued by worry. Dig down deep and you'll find the solution. Maybe your life is plagued by addiction. Dig down deep and find the source of that addiction and you'll be fine, right? Maybe it's I, I need to accept myself. I, that's my problem, right? Like I don't have enough joy in my life, so I need to accept myself and, and work through some things. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. That's what our world is teaching us. But what the gospel does is it sets you free from that. And that is a miracle in and of God and God alone, right? That we would stop looking within ourselves and look towards Jesus, right? Someone remarked on Mother Teresa's selflessness. And as an example of the gospel work in her life, someone asked, um, um, what was her secret? to her selflessness? What was her secret to looking out, right? To, to displaying something that, that wasn't of herself, to display something greater than herself in her actions. And this is what someone said, and this is a testament to the gospel of Jesus. When Mother Teresa was passing through a, a crowd in Detroit, a woman remarked, her secret is that she is free to be nothing. Therefore, God can use her for anything. That is a true mark of the gospel of Jesus Christ working itself through us is that we stop looking at ourselves and start look at looking at Jesus. We stop building ourselves up for something that we aren't and we start looking at Jesus and we start worshiping Jesus for who he is, right? We stop looking at ourselves for solutions because you know what you're going to find in the depths of your heart? More depths. You know what you're going to find in the depths of your heart? You don't know what you're going to find. The Bible says that it's deceitfully wicked above all things, and no one can know it. No one can know the depth of their depravity. Do you understand that? There, there are no answers in here, right? And so one of the works of the gospel is that you stop looking in here, and you start looking at Him. He sees your heart, and He loves you the same. He sees your malady, and He has the remedy, all right? Jesus. We stop looking at ourselves and start looking at him. Another example of the power of the gospel working out in our lives is giving peace and joy that we're surrounded by burden and pain. I wanted to, uh, to save this, this story um, for, uh, for next week um, because we're going to talk more about joy um, as evidence of the Holy Spirit working in us and how to take hold of that that joy and I got this this email this week and uh, it's just too good um, and I'm gonna try not to cry when I read it I haven't read it once without tearing up um, 
because it's an amazing example of the love and the grace of Jesus worked out in one of our sisters in Christ. And so um, let me give you a little background on this. Um, when I was at Bellevue, I was in the children's choir um, because uh, I had a twin brother who sang like an angel, um, and I tagged along, right? And so, uh, and so I, just tried not, I just tried to sing at a lower volume. Uh, and so uh, we, would, uh, we went to children's choir, and um, the leader of that, we called her Miss Higgy. Uh, her last name is, uh, is it Higginbotham? Higginbotham. Um, and, uh, and so she was our choir director as a, as a child, and you can understand why that we called her Miss Higgy. That's a heck of a lot easier to say. And uh, anyway, this past week, uh, when I was at kids camp, I got an email uh, from my parents. Uh, Miss Higgy had sent them, or they had gotten from someone. Um, her husband had died unexpectedly, um, and she wrote this email the next day. Listen to this. Listen to the peace and the joy in her email. Beloved friends, this is to let you know that my precious husband is feasting his eyes on Jesus, even as I write this. Last evening, without warning, he drew his last breath. No pain, no trouble, just slipped into the arms of his Savior. We have no arrangements at this time, and I ask you to lift our family up in prayer as we gather today to go through the process. When we know, I'll email you so, we may pray, so you may pray for us. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for all your intercession. I will never be able to describe the glorious peace that has flooded our souls. Our eyes are upon Him, and our hearts are stayed upon Him. How can we not praise our beloved Lord, who carries us through the valley of the shadow of death, defeating the enemies of our souls, doubt, anxiety, fear, distress, discouragement. Our great God is totally unlike any other God. And our hearts overflow with thanksgiving and gratitude for His love, mercy, compassion, and grace. Until we talk again, may all we are and hope to be be rooted in Jesus always. She wrote that the day after her husband went to be with the Lord. She wrote that the day after. The peace and joy of the Lord Jesus is a mark unique to Christians. It's a mark unique to those who know the intimacy of communing with Jesus. We were talking to um, the kids at kids camp this, this past week about um, giving their lives to the Lord Jesus. And it's really, really simple to say, well, when you die, you'll go to heaven. You know, that's a really simple concept. That's a simple concept for people to wrap their heads around. However, the thing that's not simple is to explain, like we sang, here in your presence, heaven and earth become one. Like, like, it's not being about, sa- about being saved later. Yes, that's part of salvation, but, but we're saved now. We're saved now in the sense that no longer do we float through this life. No longer do we go through this life without hope and without peace and without purpose. Instead, we commune with God. Do you understand? There's an intimacy. There's a relationship. People say that all the time. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. I know that's a, that's a cliche and it belongs on a bumper sticker, right? I understand that. However, it's absolutely true. There's, a, there's an intimacy of knowing the Lord Jesus. There, there's, a, 
there's a wonder and an awe and an amazement at, at, at continually looking at a love for you that's unconditional, that's unmatched by anything you'll ever experience. I can't describe to you the joy I feel at uh, 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 receiving the love of my wife. I can't describe to you the joy that I feel when I come home and my son runs out to me saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I can't describe to you that love and how that feels. However, uh, something greater than that is the love of the Father for me. I can't describe to you the peace and the joy. I can't describe to you the contentment. I can't describe to you what that's like. It's an amazing thing. It's unmatched. It's not something I can find anywhere else. It's not something I can even look for anywhere else. It's a mark of the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Is the peace and the joy of knowing the lover of your souls. That's a mark of following the Lord Jesus. Another mark of the power of the gospel in our lives. Is a restoration of the mind to serve God instead of man. In Romans, it tells us uh, to transform, uh, to have our minds transformed, or excuse me, to be transformed ugh, by the renewing of our minds. And, and this, this means that one of the marks of the gospel is to completely change the way you think and use your mind. No longer is your mind yours to serve yourself. No longer is this a private place for you to do whatever you want with now. This is another place, another example, another area that I can love God with, that I can honor God with, right? No longer do I see the world as the world wants me to see it. I see it as it truly is through the lens of Jesus, right? It's a completely transformed way of thinking. It's like I've heard said before, to let the mind of the master be the master of your mind. That's a mark of the gospel. That's the mark of the power of the gospel is to transform your mind. When you talk to people who don't know Jesus and when you talk to them and they, and they mock you or they might think how, how ridiculous this is or, or maybe they're confounded by it. I had a conversation recently with a family member of mine who says, I admire the, the depth of your faith. I admire the fervency of your belief, but it confounds me. I don't understand it. Is it that he is stupid? No. Is it that he is lazy? No. It's that his mind is not regenerated. His mind is not renewed. It's not transformed. His eyes haven't been opened yet. A mark of following Jesus and the gospel working its way in our lives is a transformed mind. Another way that the power of the gospel is at work in our lives is to now, listen to this, to now delight in what you once warred against. Do you hear what I just said? A work of the gospel in your life, the power of it is now you take delight in what's you, what you once hated and what, you, what you, you once lived to war against. You delight in you delight in the cross of Jesus, which once used to be foolish. You delight in it. You delight in the ways of God, which once outside of Him, outside of relationship with Him, the Word of God and the commands of Christ were nothing but shackles. And now in a relationship with Christ and understanding His love for you and, and you trust Him, they're no longer shackles. They set you free and you delight in His commands. That's a mark of God. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And you 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's now reconciled in his body and flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You were once alienated, separated from God. You were once hostile to God. You hated the things of God. But now you've been reconciled, brought in through the blood and the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is powerful. It's not words. It's not a game. It's not something to start a club over. It's not something to just get about, get around and talk with. It's alive and it transforms and it's active and it's powerful. I heard this this week. A.B. Simpson described the gospel this way. The gospel tells rebellious men that God is reconciled. That justice satisfied. Sin atoned for. Judgment of the guilty may be revoked. The condemnation of the sinner canceled. The curse of the law blotted out. The gates of hell closed. The portals of heaven opened wide. The power of sin subdued. The guilty conscience healed. The broken heart comforted. The sorrow and misery of the fall undone. This is power. The gospel of Jesus is power. It's not words. It's power. And if you experience that power, is your mind renewed? Is your heart renewed? Do you have joy? Do you have peace? Is your mind focused? Is it restored? Is it regenerated? Have you experienced that power? Because the gospel is power. It's power. The gospel not only brings power, it brings assurance. Assurance is firm conviction or a full persuasion of the truth. Now, we've all dealt with doubt. I'm not talking about that. But what I am saying is that the mark of the gospel, the true gospel working in someone's life, taking root in someone's life and changing them is the full persuasion of the truth of Jesus. Jesus says that he is the door and there is no standing halfway through this door. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth, not the half truth. The gospel of Jesus brings full peace and full persuasion to the mind and heart of the believer about who Jesus is. Think about that moment of conversion, all right? Think about it like this. You have to deny yourself and follow Jesus. The moment of conversion is to say, I am wrong, you are right. The moment of conversion is to say, you are Lord, I am not. Is a full persuasion of the truth of who Jesus is. That's when the gospel is truly at work. There's no half-truths in the gospel. There's no half-persuasion in the gospel. It is either Jesus is who he says he is, or he's not. The gospel is a full persuasion. And, and the true gospel work is full work, not half-work. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's a full assurance. It's a full persuasion of the truth of Jesus. St. Augustine, uh, in, his, uh, in his writings, confession, uh, gives his conversion experience. And, and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. He, at this point in his life, is wrestling with the doubts of who God is and who he is in relation to God. And, and here's what he says. Complete assurance of who God is and who he was in God. Uh, uh, I was weeping. In the most bitter contrition of my heart, when I heard the voice of children from a neighboring house chanting, Take up and read, take up and read. I could not remember ever 
having heard the like. So checking the torrent of my tears, I arose, interrupting, uh, interpreting excuse me, it to be no other than a command from God to open the book and read the first chapter I should find. Eagerly then I returned to the place where I had laid the volume of the apostle. I seized and opened and in silence read that section on which my eyes first fell. Listen to this. Not in revelry and drunkenness um, and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. No further would I read, nor did I need to. For instantly, at the end of this sentence, it seemed as if the light of serenity infused into my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. One mark of the gospel of Jesus truly at work in people's life is the assurance of who He is. The assurance of who He is and who we are in Him. Have you ever experienced the assurance of the work of Jesus Christ? Have you been convicted of His Lordship and of your depravity? This is gospel work. Now, this is a very challenging truth that comes from the example of those, but uh, in Thessalonica in verse 5, but, but where did this power and assurance come from? There's something we skipped over, and, and it's, 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 it's extremely important. It's, 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 it's what hinges these things together. Where did the power and assurance come from? Look back at verse 5. In the Holy Spirit. If you and I, if we, the church, want to see the gospel go out in power and in assurance and go out and do what it is, is made to do, what it can do, what it exists to do, then we must, our confidence must solely rest in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.4, we read, we read earlier, my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit. Where is our confidence as a church. What do you put your trust in? Is our trust in our success, is it in our programs? What a great program we have. Is it in people? Is it in our pastors? Is it in our preachers? Is it in our teachers? Is it in our numbers? How many people are here? Is it in our appearance? Where is our confidence? Is it in our intellect? Is it in our discussions of the Word of God? Where is our confidence? Very simply put, is our confidence built in our planning or in our praying? Is our confidence built in our planning or in our praying? Too often, I must confess, that I spend more time planning and working. And it far outweighs my prayer for that part of my life. And I want to say this. When there's a success in that area of my life, I, be, I truly believe this. I believe that... Um, it is God doing a miracle, taking garbage that I'm giving Him and making it gold. And I believe it's only a partial blessing to what could have been. In fact, I believe it's very, very gracious of the Father to let me fail in those instances or to only partially bless me. And here's why I mean I believe that's gracious. Because if I continually bring Him strategy and study over humble prayer and humbly falling before Him and asking for His power then if I am successful, where is my confidence growing? In me, not in Him. Where does the glory go? To me, not to Him. And praise God that He doesn't allow that. Praise God that He doesn't allow me to continue to build myself up to something I am not. Praise God that He doesn't allow me to serve myself and not Him. Praise God for the failures that I bring about myself and praise God for the grace that he continues to let me serve him. Praise God. 
One of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. John 16, 14, Jesus said, He will glorify me. I can't bring Him glory without the Holy Spirit. I can only glorify myself. That's how I'm wired. My nature is bent and broken. And I look at myself, and I think about myself, and I glorify myself. Without the Holy Spirit, I can't glorify God. I'm not built that way. My depravity wouldn't allow it. It's ridiculous without the Holy Spirit. It's like this. If glory is illuminating all of who God is without the Holy Spirit, do you know what I have to illuminate Him in the darkness? I have matches. And what do matches do? Matches illuminate the man holding it. Do you know what the Holy Spirit is when we want to bring glory to God? He's our floodlight. He's our spotlight that we can clearly point away from ourselves and point and see and let it be seen the full glory of who God is. And the full goodness of Christ Jesus. That's what it is. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's how he gives us the ability to glorify Christ Jesus and not to glorify ourselves. The power of the Holy Spirit. Now, how did the early church know they were demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit? How did they know that it, it wasn't just their own power? How did they know that they were serving by his power and not their own? I'll give you a couple of, of simple examples. Number one. They prayed and prayed and prayed and worshiped and prayed and studied and prayed and prayed and prayed. Do I need to go on? And prayed. The early church in Acts prayed. Before that God told them, Jesus told them to go and wait that he was going to send the helper. They had things to do. They were a new organization. They didn't have a structure set up. Their leader just ascended into heaven. They had things to do. They had a disciple to replace, an apostle to replace. In case you didn't remember, Judas was gone now. And they needed to do that. They needed to vote somebody else in. They needed to restructure. They needed to plan. They needed strategy. And what did they do? Acts 1, verse 12 through 14. Looking down in verse 13. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. To prayer. Our lives should be marked by prayer, because in prayer, we are leaning into the Holy Spirit, simply saying, God, it's you. You are the source of our power. You are the source, the author, and, and the only one deserving of success, all right? And so we look to you, and we want you to work through us for yourself. Early uh, African converts to Christianity were earnest and regular in their, in their prayer lives. And they, they would pick a spot out in the thicket where um, they would pray every day. And it became very clear when a brother would, would give up. Um, they would start to, to, uh, to not be as fervent in their prayer time and not as faithful. And so um, one would gently say to the other, um, brother, uh, brother, the grass grows on your path. Because as they started to give up that, uh, that, that discipline in their life, the grass would grow back. would grow back where they used to kneel every day and pack it into the earth as they prayed and begged for the power of God in their lives. And so I guess the question I have for you is, does the grass grow on your path? Does the grass grow on your path? Or are you marked by prayer? Are you marked by prayer? They not only were marked by prayer, but they continually were uncomfortable. 
They continually were uncomfortable. Persecution and difficulty is not only a mark of doing gospel work, but it's also a mark of discipleship. We see uh, persecution never kept them from gospel work. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Their confidence was in the gospel, not in their comfort. How many times have you started your sentences with, I can't? I can't volunteer at the church. I couldn't speak to someone about Jesus. I can't forgive this person. I couldn't go and do this. I couldn't go and do that. I couldn't give this. I couldn't give that. Where is your confidence? Your confidence is not in your calling of God. Your confidence is in your comfort. I'm sure that this circulated in their minds every day. Exodus 9, 16. But I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Their focus was their calling, not their comfort. Their focus was fulfilling the calling that God had on their life, not their comfort. Not their comfort, right? They continually were uncomfortable. The third way and last way, they took God-sized steps of faith. And left plenty of room to fail. Left plenty of room to fail. The step of faith and provision. They were generous to one another. Acts 4, 32. They had everything in common. So when they saw a need, they met it. And they left room to fail. Because if the Holy Spirit didn't show up and wasn't faithful and met their needs, then what? They would starve. They left plenty of room. They took God-sized steps of faith and left room to fail. In persecution, Stephen stood and spoke of the glory of Christ, taking a huge step of faith, and God honored him and rewarded him by Jesus giving him honor and standing and letting Stephen see him in his throne room. Ananias was faithful to go to Saul and do what he was told to do, although he was fearful. He knew his calling and went after his calling and took a God-sized step of faith, leaving plenty of room to fail. In ministry, they went everywhere from synagogues to Samaria. They went to everyone from demoniacs to dignitaries. They took giant God-sized steps of faith and left plenty of room to fail if the Holy Spirit didn't show up. Why? Because who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? The Holy Spirit. So let me close by asking some questions. And these are hard questions, and they were hard for me to write down. Where are we, or you, taking risks? Where are we not letting our weaknesses get in the way of what God's calling us to do? Where are we, or you, leaving room to fail? And where are we looking for the hand of God to provide? Where are we, or you, allowing ourselves discomfort? In discipleship, are you being challenged? In service, are we stretching ourselves past what we think we can do. When you go in the name of Jesus to do whatever he's called you to do, does your prayer time outweigh your planning time? The success of our church does not rest on our time in Sunday school or sitting in this room listening to me preach. It rests on the time we spend as a church in prayer. The success of our church rests not on us. Uh, it rests on us walking into waters that make our sinful natures uncomfortable and proclaim the power and the provision of Jesus. The success of our leadership rests on the elders and leaders of this church spending more time praying together about our church than we do talking about our church. The success of our staff depends on us taking risks that leave room to fail if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up and do His work. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, make us a people who embrace our weakness and display Your power. Destroy our man-made confidence and may we only be confident in the name of Jesus. 
Lord Jesus, may the gospel not just be a game for us. May it not just be words. May it not just be something that we talk about, something we think about, something that we gather around. But may it be something that goes in power. May it be something that transforms us. And may it be something that inspires us. May it be something that we carry to others and it transforms them as well. God, may we stop leaning on our own abilities to spread your gospel. May we stop leaning on our own abilities to spread the love and the fame of Jesus Christ. And may we start leaning into the Holy Spirit. Would you make us a people of prayer? God, would you continually make us more and more uncomfortable when our planning outweighs our praying? Would you make us continually um, aware? And would you make us uh, continually sensitive to our need to spend time humbly before you? May we understand that as a paramount. May we understand that as the ultimate priority. Lord Jesus, teach us to lean into you. And may we go in power with your gospel. We love you. Make yourself famous. It's in Jesus' name. We're going to um, sing one last song together, one last chorus together. And I'm going to, um, we're just going to give you a time to respond to whatever God's doing in, in your life. So I don't know what that looks like.